So we're in lesson 34 of the book of Romans. And we're starting to see this is not a book for the faint of heart. And we left off last week with the last of the four statements which make up verses 1 through 13 of chapter 10. And the last one of these four statements really summarizes the rest of the statements. We're not going to go through them all again today. But if you want to understand chapter 10, and you're going to have to pick up lessons 31 through 33. But remember that we ended with this last four statement. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that word saved means to be healed morally, physically, and not only that, eternally. And what does he mean by whoever will call on the name? Well, as I said, we just went through seven other four statements. And they answer this for us. The first three four statements, verses 1 through 4, answer the whoever. And of course, in the broader sense, it means whoever, Greek or Jew. In other words, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But remember, we have to keep this in context. And his main purpose when we're reading this. And his context is the Jewish people who have failed to accept Messiah Yeshua. And the problem he's addressing is this alienation of the Jewish people from these Roman believers. They used to worship together in the synagogue. The Jewish people were the ones who brought the good news to Rome. And taught these Romans the word of God. But after this five-year eviction of the Jewish people from Rome and the wave of anti-Semitism that swept through Rome under Claudius, the Roman believers have had to go it alone for five years. They have new leaders and they're Roman Gentiles. And they have been alienated from the Jewish people who are now returning to Rome. So while it's true of all men, He, more specifically, is speaking of the Jewish people. Yes, they miss the Messiah because of their lack of knowledge and understanding. But as he said earlier, they love God and God loves them. So he's saying, remember, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's saying they can still call on the name of the Lord and be saved. You see, he is in chapters 9 through 11 offering a defense of the Jewish people, particularly those who are not yet believers in the Messiah Yeshua. Remember our first seven fours. The first, he says, the Jewish people have a great zeal, or we could say a great love for God. Then second, he says, even though they loved God, they still missed the righteousness that is by faith because they focused on works of the law. Third, the righteousness they missed was actually the very goal of the Torah, the very goal of the law, the point of the whole book, the Messiah Yeshua. And then in the next four, four statements, he tells us in essence that the righteous will live by the law through faith and not by works. Faith in Messiah Yeshua who came down from heaven so that no man would have to go up And bring understanding down. And that no man would have to descend to the abyss to bring understanding up. 
Because now through faith in Messiah Yeshua, who is the one who descended and ascended from the abyss. He is the living word and now he's near you. He's in your heart. And then finally he says, all you have to do is call on him and you'll be saved. And so he's saying, you know, you know the Messiah. He's saying to the Romans, you know the Messiah, yes. But it's not too late for God's Jewish people because whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All they have to do is call. So what does he mean by call? Hey, Lord. <laughs> call on the name. Well, again, those first four statements or the set, those four of these four statements, verses five through nine, answer that question for us. And the key word is call. It means appeal. Whoever appeals to the Lord will be saved. And of course, to appeal to the Lord, you have to believe in your heart that he's Lord, that he can help you. Remember, our definition of the word believe comes not from Webster's Dictionary, but by example through the life of Abraham, the one who believed. He is God's example, or we could say the Bible's definition of the word believe for us. He's our definition of the word believe. Abraham loved and believed God to the degree that he offered his only son. He obeyed God to the degree that he would offer his son on an altar because God had told him, through Isaac, your offspring will be reckoned and he believed God would resurrect him or somehow save him because he told him, it's through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. So, if you believe in your heart as Abraham believed that God himself would provide a lamb and that Yeshua is that lamb of God, and he is your Lord, your master, your teacher, your sovereign. And everything he says is yes and amen. If you believe that he is the word made flesh come down from heaven so that you don't have to say who will ascend to heaven to bring the word down for us to obey. That he died and was resurrected so that we don't have to say who will descend to the abyss. That is to bring the word up for us so that we can obey. You will be saved. You see, this word call could be easily understood by example. And the point being, if someone falls down and has a heart attack, you immediately pick up your phone and dial 911 because that's the surest way to get this fellow help. In the same way, you call on God because you know he's the only one who can help. You're confident that he's the one who saves, that he's the one who heals, that he's the only one who can help, the only truth, the only way, and through him, you will find life. You call on the one you believe and have faith in because you believe he can help, right? You don't call on somebody you don't think can help you. Not if you've got any brains you don't anyway. See, you've all heard my testimony. And that night that I called on Jesus, I knew there was no one else who could help me. I was at the end of my rope and I knew Yeshua was the only way. I couldn't help myself. Nobody else could help me. So I called on Jesus and I said, I need your help. I can't go on. 
That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. To accept him for who and what he says he is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And then accept him and his help and go and live the way he did. In truth. Now I called on him because even though I had not lived my life in obedience to him, even though I had not lived a life I had lived a life without regard for his truths and even though I lived a life of sin and I knew I was not worthy, I also know that he was the Lord and the one who could help because when I was eight years old, a woman took me to summer Bible school and they told me about Jesus. And I knew from that experience that Jesus was real. And so 30 years later, In a field at night, in this time of deep despair, I called on the one who I knew could help. Fulfilling what Paul says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because if I can call on the name of the Lord and be saved, anybody can. But what would have happened? What would have happened had I not gone to Bible school that summer? God only knows. But because I did, I knew who to call on and who could help. I knew who could intervene in my life and save me and heal me. And that that is what it means to call on the name of the Lord. And that's exactly what he'll address next. He says in verse 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? You see, again, what would have happened if Donna Smith had not spoken to my mother and took me to Bible summer camp and I had not believed on Jesus that summer? Well, it's easy. 30 years later, when I was in that field, I wouldn't have had anybody to call on, would I? I would not have heard and I would not have believed and I would have not have known to call on Jesus. And of course, I'm using myself as an example, but who is really the they in the verse? The they will call in the verse. Well, again, let's keep it in context because it's the Jewish people who will call on him. How will the Jewish people call on him? What, is he, what does he say? He's going to answer that in verse 15. He says, how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Again, by example, if that Methodist congregation, they had not made a push that summer, and sent members out to recruit children to come to that Bible camp, if they had not brought them back to hear the word of God, how would I have believed? But they did. And how beautiful were the feet of Donna Smith as she brought me that good news. Amen? And I want you to notice that he quotes Isaiah 52. And I want to read it for you. Verse 7, he says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. He quotes Isaiah 52, but notice that he changes the him, referring to the Messiah, or as some versions say, the one who brings good news to those who bring good news. 
And for us, that means it is our responsibility to do as those who have done before us, as Donna Smith did to me, and bring others the good news. Amen? Amen. And in the context, he's setting them up for chapter 11. He's telling them it's their responsibility to witness to the Jewish people. And what I think that he's doing, he's laying the groundwork here. He's putting the spreading the good news to the Jewish people right in the laps of these Romans. I think Paul is saying that it's all of our responsibility to spread the good news. And not just to our fellow Romans, not just to our families, but also to our Jewish brothers as well, his Jewish brothers as well. And he began to tell us how to do that later in chapter 11 and continue through the rest of the book to tell the Romans how to spread this good news and where they're falling short of spreading the good news. What is the surest way to spread the good news? Well, all you have to do is is follow what Paul has been saying. If we put that into the context of what Paul has said in chapter 10, it means if you believe in your heart as Abraham believed, then it will be as evident in your life as it was in Abraham's life. In other words, your life will be different from those around you. And when you are asked about the changes in your life and the changes in your action, then you'll confess with your mouth that it is Yeshua who is Lord. He is your master and the one who directs your life and the one who changed your life and the one who saved you. And Scripture says... Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth and you will be saved. You'll be a witness for the Messiah, Yeshua. That's everyone's responsibility. That's the good news heard and obeyed. We are to live lives different than the world around us. And when asked why we live that way, it opens the door for us to declare Yeshua to the world, to confess that it's not us that makes us kind. It's not me that's compassionate and full of love, but it's Messiah Yeshua working through me that's kind, compassionate, and abounding in love because he's the master of my life. And if we put that into the context, when I say everyone's responsibility to spread the good news, of course, Paul has in mind these Romans' responsibility to spread the good news to his Jewish people. So now he continues to answer, he continues now, he's going to answer the obvious question that they should be asking, which is, yes, the feet of him who brings good news is beautiful, but they did not accept the good news. They didn't accept it from you, and they're not accepting it from us. So he goes on to say this. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, who has believed our report? So faith comes through hearing, and hearing by the word of Messiah. Notice what it says. They did not heed. And that word there, heed, if you look it up in the Greek, means obey. They did not obey the gospel. Now that's a novel thought, right? How often do you hear that preached, that you have to obey the gospel? How do you obey the gospel? Well, let's keep in mind, what is the gospel? The gospel is... We were hopelessly lost and God said, I'm going to send my son. 
my only son, my eternal son, the one who was with me at creation, to give his life in exchange for the lives of my people. It will not just be any life because my, life, my son's life is an eternal life so that all who call on him will receive eternal life. I give this eternal life to all the sons of Adam. A free gift to everyone who will call on his name. And how, so how do you obey that? Well, you obey it quite simply by believing it and putting your trust in the Messiah and then you obey him. Do we see this obeying in the gospel or in, the, in, our, in our scriptures? Well, let's look at Acts chapter 22, verse 6 through 10. But it happened that, I was, that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Shaul, Shaul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Yeshua, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? You see, when confronted with the presence of the master and the good news that Yeshua gave his eternal life so that Paul might have eternal life and that everything that those that he was persecuting was saying were saying was true, What does he say in the face of Yeshua being alive and well? He says, what shall I do? You see, the good news and the life it gives has to elicit some kind of a response. How can you receive something so wondrous and have no response? And our response should be the same as Shaul's. Lord, what must I do? To obey the gospel is following in the footsteps of Messiah Yeshua. Now you don't hear that for the most part preached in the gospel we preach today, do you? That is our responsibility to obey in faith the words of Messiah Yeshua. After all, that's our responsibility. After all, I mean, what was his final command? Go make disciples or we could say students, because that's what that word means, students of the nations, teaching them to obey everything I command. That is why he says faith comes through hearing the words of Messiah and obeying. Are the words of Messiah different from the words of Torah and the prophets? Well, Paul just spent chapter 10 telling us that Indeed, the gospel that he preaches is the very same gospel that Moses preached. In fact, he quotes Moses to explain the gospel. He quotes Moses and says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven to bring the word down, or who will descend to the abyss to bring the word up, because the word who is Messiah Yeshua, the word made flesh, is in your heart. Obey In the gospel means you will become one of the sons of God. And you'll do that by following in the footsteps of the Son of God. 
who was the fulfillment of the Torah, who loved his neighbor as himself, in fact, more than himself, because he gave his life for his neighbor, who walked through life by the leading of the Spirit of God. Folks, that's the new covenant, walking through life by the leading of the Spirit of God. And what does walking through life by the Spirit of God look like? Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Messiah Yeshua have crucified their sinful natures with his passions and desires. So since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. Obedience to the good news means, hey, a life change. And that's what it looks like. You become like Messiah Yeshua, who was the exact image of the Father. Where do you suppose Paul got those qualities? He got them from Exodus 34, verse 6. As God passes in front of Moses, he declares, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. You see, what I want you to see is the gospel requires obedience and obedience to the Messiah and to the Torah. It means there'll be a heart change and you'll begin to resemble God. You'll resemble God because you'll be his disciple, his student. You'll become like him, like Messiah Yeshua, who was the image of the living God. That's why he says, so faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Messiah. And remember that word here in Hebrew is Shema. It means hear, but it means obey. Now, right away, someone's going to say, stand. I'll stand. How come the church teaches the Torah is no more? Are they not saved? Well, as I've said many times before, the church teaches that the law has been done away with, but if they compared their lives with the law, they'd be appalled at how much of the Torah they keep. You see, with the exception of the Sabbath, the festivals, and the dietary laws, they do keep Torah, the Torah that can be kept. They love their neighbor. They love God. And folks, God's big enough and sovereign enough to take care of the rest in his own timing. I don't got to worry about that. He's got it under control. Now he says, in speaking of Israel, he asks this rhetorical question in verse 18. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Have they heard? Well, yes, they have. In fact, the whole world has heard. And the whole world is without excuse. He told us that already. And what does he quote here? He quotes Psalm 19 and verse 4. But let's go read the context. Listen to what the context says, beginning with verse 1. The heavens and the earth declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. 
You see, Psalm, this psalm said, this, he quotes this psalm to say, they heard, in fact, the whole world has heard because creation teaches it. The nations rejected the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, for images of the creation. For their images of men. And they were without excuse. They're without excuse. They should have known from creation itself. Remember, Paul covered this in chapter 1. Look, the sun, the moon, the stars. Do you think that wooden image made those? Do you think that Caesar had his hand in that? Perhaps you think that it all happened on its own and there is no God. You see, everyone should have known, but they didn't. And the whole, because the whole creation screams at you, who do you think could have made all this? Now another rhetorical question, verse 19. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses said, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. But surely Israel did not know, did they? Of course they did. And so he says, of those who exchanged the glory of God for images of men, those who are without understanding, those who forsook me, I will use those to make you jealous. Why would God do that? Well, he also quotes Isaiah for the answer. He says in verse 20, he says, For Isaiah is very bold and he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, All day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. He said he was found by a bunch of Greeks who had exchanged the glory of the living God for the sun, the moon. They exchanged the worship of the creator for creation. They exchanged the living God for works of their own hands in the form of images of men, creatures, sun, moon, and stars. The fact is, I, have, I, I believe that the nations worshiped everything but God. Think about it. Frogs, even. Do you really think a frog could have made all this? <laughs> so God says, he will take those who were not even looking for him and make Israel envious. Think about it. Were the Romans looking for the Messiah? Well, you don't look for God unless you're in need of something. And the Romans were a people who were on top of the world, so to speak. Romans were rulers of the world. They were on top of the world. Rome and its gods were everything. They ruled the world because their gods were so powerful. That's what they thought. They weren't even looking for a Messiah. And what? They found him. But as for Israel, who knew the true creator, who worshipped in his temple and lived in his land, they failed to see the one who was in his very image. Why? Well, he already told us why. Because they were so obstinately focused on the works of the law. Fulfilling the law not by faith but by works. Israel was so focused on their own works 
of the law, the works of their own hands in keeping the law, they miss the Messiah who is in the image of the living God. What did he say in verse 12 of chapter 10? He says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, richly blesses all who call on him, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, there's no difference between the nations who missed God through the works of their hands and the Jewish people who missed God through the works of their hands. The work of their hands was just a little different. And notice what he says of those from the nations. He says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. You know, I could say the same thing of Shaul. I could say the same thing of of the Jewish people, only in an opposite way. Ask yourself something. Was Paul looking for the Messiah when he fell off of his donkey? I don't think so. He was on top of the world. He was just sent by the high priest. The man who's supposed to be closest to God to persecute these blasphemous people who are declaring a dead man to be the Messiah. Think about it. Can you imagine what a hard sell the gospel was to the Jewish people of the first century at the time of Paul? Think, have you ever thought about it? Let's imagine for a moment that Paul didn't meet Yeshua on the road to Damascus that day. And we were in Damascus waiting for him and others to come into town. We're waiting there with our tracks and our gospel message. Same gospel message that we preach in the church today. And here comes Shaul of Tarsus. Sent by none other than the high priest of God from the temple of God. And we say, excuse me, sir. I would like to give you one of these tracks. <laughs> and I want to tell you that God has a plan for your life. Listen, God loves you. And he wants to forgive your sin. And so he sent his son Yeshua to die for you that your sins might be forgiven and that you'll have eternal life with him. Would you take just a moment to pray? (laughs) Would you take just a moment to pray? I can't even say it. (laughs) The sinner's prayer with me. (laughs) You know what he would have said? He would have said, arrest that heretic. We're going to take him back to Jerusalem. Why would he say that? He didn't need a sacrifice for sin. The Torah tells him how to regain right standing with God. After a transgression of the Torah, go to the temple and offer the prescribed offering. You see, Paul wasn't looking for an offering for his sins. In his mind, he wasn't a sinner. And those things where he felt he might have fallen short and transgressed God's law were taken care of yearly by the Yom Kippur offering. Not only that, hey... He's from the nation of Israel. We don't need to know God. We already know God. In fact, I'm going back to his temple to take you to stand trial before his high priest for your heresy. You see, here's what Paul thought of himself before Yeshua knocked him off his horse. Philippians 3 verse 4 says, If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, 
As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Messiah. You can almost hear him saying, what do you mean God has a plan for my life? I'm walking out God's plan for my life. God has a plan for the whole nation I'm a part of, the people of Israel. As for Torah, my behavior is faultless. Sin offering, I don't need a sin offering. You see, the point I'm trying to make is that Paul didn't think he needed what we're selling. No man could have convinced him. So is it any wonder Yeshua had to appear to him and knock him off his horse? That was the only way that he could have changed this fellow who thought so highly of himself. But then he found the Messiah. And we met the glory of the living God and realized that all that he had accomplished and all that he had done in life was really worthless. And here's what he thought of himself after that. 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, I thank Yeshua, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man i was shown mercy because i acted in ignorance and unbelief the grace of the lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in yeshua the messiah you see that's what happens to you when you're confronted with the holiness and the glory of god whatever you are and whoever you are all of a sudden is dung it's shameful And all you want to do is crawl under a rock and hide. Paul thought he knew God. He thought his sins were covered. Then he saw the glory of God and he realized he was dead in his transgressions. You see, he didn't need. He felt he didn't need what we're selling. And I might add, it's no different today. If you want to know why it's so hard and so frustrating to witness to an Orthodox Jew, is they they don't think they need what you're selling. An offering for sin, we don't need that because my rabbi told me that God gave us good deeds and repentance to take away our sin. We don't need a sin offering. We're part of God's chosen people, the keepers of his Torah. And they think of themselves very similarly to what Paul thought. And what did he say? As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. The Orthodox Jew today says, we are the only ones who know how to keep God's Torah. If you want to share in the world to come, forget about that Yeshua you're preaching. Come in and join us and be a part of the nation of Israel. We'll teach you how to obey Torah and we'll circumcise you and you'll be part of the people of God. And then you'll have a share in the world to come because all Israel has a share in the world to come and you'll be a part. That's their reasoning. Well, if that's the case, then we have to ask ourselves something. How do we make Israel jealous when they don't think they know they need what we're selling? How are we to sell them on Yeshua, the offering for sin, when to their way of thinking they have no sin and the sin they do have is covered by good deeds and repentance because their rabbi told them that? How are we to make Israel envious when they have the Torah and they think they have the secrets to the only true way of keeping Torah? 
What do they need that they should listen to us? We should be asking ourselves that because after all, Moses tells us that the nations will make them jealous. Isaiah confirms that the nations will make them jealous. And Paul agrees and quotes them, telling us we're to make Israel envious. How on earth do we do that? When in their eyes, they've already got it all. Preach Yeshua crucified, they don't need that. Preach heaven, or what they would call the world to come, they don't need that because all Israel has a part and a share in the world to come. Will they be envious on, our, on the basis of our keeping Torah, as many Messianics believe? Folks, they think our Torah keeping is mashug. Christians have been telling them for years that the Torah has been abolished. How can we expect to witness to the Jewish people telling them they don't need Torah but only Yeshua? Here, have a ham sandwich. Do you think they're going to believe that? So how do we make them envious? Did Moses and Isaiah and Paul make a mistake? Did they hear the wrong word from God? Where's the jealousy? What must we do to make Israel jealous? These are questions we're still trying to answer since Paul, Moses, and Isaiah spoke them. We're still trying to, Martin Luther tried to answer them. He thought he had the answers, but in the end he became so frustrated that he became an anti-Semitic. Every generation struggles with this. How are we to make Israel envious? You know, I can't wait till we get to chapter 11. Where Paul brings this all home. I've been waiting for chapter 11 since last fall when we began chapter 1. God says through Moses exactly what Paul is trying to tell the Romans. That it was God's plan that when Israel, when Israel failed to see the good news and obey, that he would make them envious by a nation who was not a nation, a nation without understanding. By a nation that missed what the heavens and the earth declare every single day. What does he mean, I will make them envious? Let's take a peek at chapter 11 here. Just to, we'll just browse up here for a second. Here. Verse 13. I'm talking to you Gentiles in as much as I'm apostle to the Gentiles and I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Notice what he says. I make much of my ministry to you Gentiles in hope that I may arouse my people to envy. He didn't say so that you would make Israel jealous. He said I will. Look at what Moses said. Listen to what Moses said. He said, I will make you jealous by a nation that is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. He he didn't say, they will anger you. They will make you jealous. He says, I will make you jealous. You see, Paul didn't think that it was some great thing that we might do that would cause Israel to become envious. 
He didn't think that all of a sudden our Sabbath keeping and our keeping of the dietary laws and our making fringes would make, in, uh, make them envious as me, many Messianic believers think. I mean, really think about it. When you mimic someone, do you make them envious? <laughs> no. Quite the contrary. It's not some through some great thing that we're going to do. But Paul says it's through my ministry and God says, I will make them envious. You see, it's all about what God is going to do. It's all about God pouring out His grace on the nations. It's not what we're going to do. You can quit trying to make them envious because they're not going to be envious of you. I can guarantee you that. He might arouse people to envy. Now I'll let you think about that for a few weeks until we get to chapter 11. Amen.